Thank you for that piece. It's, uh, of course, very appropriate for today, being Palm Sunday, and uh, the, the, the word Hosanna keeps being repeated as we hear in the scripture lesson. Uh, all four Gospels talk about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the last week of his life, and so let's hear how the Gospel of Matthew puts that story from chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, 7 through 10. Uh, listen now for God's word to all of us today. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to, to understand as best we can your word and your world, to feel your presence today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every Palm Sunday we read the story of how Jesus processes, marches, parades into Jerusalem, seated on the colt of a donkey, at the head of what seems to everybody looking on to be an army of followers. And as the crowd gathers, as you can hear in the story, they, they get exultant, they're jubilant, they're, they're so excited about what, uh, what they see happening in front of them. They're happy to be part of it because what they're reminded of as Jesus is marching in, coming in with this crowd and on the donkey, is a very old prophecy, a prophecy from the prophet Zechariah that a day would come when the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the savior of the Jews, a day is gonna come when he would enter into Jerusalem in that exact same way and he would free the people the Jewish people from oppression and reestablish the kingdom of David. And right now, the crowd that is gathered really wants and needs and expects a Messiah because they are facing oppression from the greatest oppressor of all at that time in history, the Roman Empire. So they, they, they wave their palm fronds as the kids and adults were doing here today and as the choir was doing, they, which is an ancient sign of welcome for a conquering hero or, or welcome for a new king who's going to be enthroned. And they shout, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, a lot of people ask me, you know, what does Hosanna mean? Does it kind of mean like hallelujah or something like that? No, it actually doesn't. In Hebrew, the word Hosanna, the closest approximation we can come up with for the word Hosanna is save us now. Save 
us now. So what do they want to be saved from right now? The Romans, of course. But then, by the very next day, Jesus seems to go out of his way not to fulfill their dreams of a warrior king who's going to come and by force overthrow the Romans and set the people of Israel free and set himself up on the throne of David. No, he's not going to be that kind of a Messiah. So the crowd who cheers from him for him on Sunday, of course, does what? They turn on him like a dime like on a dime. And by Friday, they are shouting that they want him to be executed. And that makes this week that we call holy full of contradictions. Maybe the biggest contradiction of all is how the suffering of somebody that we identify with God can somehow bring peace to the rest of us. Now, it would be easy for us to come to church today and then come back next Sunday and and then basically completely miss the tragedy of what happens to Jesus in the last week of his life. Because if if you do that, if you do that, if if you just come today and next Sunday and don't look at what happens in between, then Easter doesn't make any sense at all. So this morning, I want us to pay attention to what happens to Jesus on the last day of his life and what his suffering means for us today. So now we're going to turn later on in the gospel and hear these words. Jesus has already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate, the governor of the Roman Empire, or the governor of Judea from the Roman Empire. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man inciting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Boy, how different things get in a week. And then they all shouted out together, Away with this fellow, release Barabbas for us. This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. The third time, Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I'll therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man that they'd asked for, the one who'd been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon when the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Again, what a difference. What a difference five days can make in a week. Now, there are so many ways that you can consider, think about the death of Jesus. So many feelings it can bring up for you. Tears it can bring, confusion, anxiety, upset. So many theories, too. Theories of what does Jesus' death do or accomplish for our salvation, or what we call in theology, the atonement. So many ways of thinking about what it means. But this morning, I just want to focus on just one aspect of what the cross can mean for you and me. And it's this, that at the heart of our Christian faith hangs a crucified God. At the heart of our Christian faith hangs a crucified God. I mean, just think about it. The New Testament devotes more space to Jesus' suffering and death than to any other aspect of his life. So clearly, it's central to the story of his life and what it means for him to be the instrument of our salvation. Which means that even if the cross is a grotesque image of violence and a miscarriage of justice, it also gives us a picture of what our God is like. What is God like? Well, the theologian Jürgen Moltmann put it this way, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God. And God is like this. That is, in Christ we see that our God is not just a deity of unremitting triumph and majesty, who just blows away all the competition and the Roman Empire to boot. Our God isn't like that. Our God is one who endures suffering. Now, before his arrest, uh, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember from the, from the Gospels. And Gethsemane in Hebrew, it actually has an interesting meaning. Gethsemane in Hebrew means oil press. So the Garden of Gethsemane was actually a place where olives, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, where olives were pressed to make oil. And you can hear that pressure on Jesus when he says, Father, take this cup or take this suffering away from me. And then when he's on the cross in physical and spiritual anguish, he cries out in, in the words of, of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Elie Wiesel was the only member of his family, Jewish family, to survive the concentration camp at Auschwitz. And in one of his books, he tells a very powerful story about what happened there. One day, along with all the rest of the prisoners, he was forced to witness the execution of three men. And one of them was a teenage boy, just like Ellie himself. They'd been accused of blowing up a power station. And so to drive home the point that any resistance to the Nazis was going to be futile, all the prisoners were forced to walk by the execution, the gallows, and to witness it firsthand, close up. So the older men had already died, but, but the young boy, the youth, was still alive, clinging to life, hanging on the gallows. And from somewhere behind him, Elie Wiesel heard a man ask, where is God now? Where is God now? It's quite a question. I'm sure it's something that we've all asked ourselves or been asked or will ask at some point in the future. And, and there is no easy answer. I, I'm not here today to tell you I'm going to set it all straight by any means. It's a mystery. Where is God when you get cancer? When someone you love dies? Where is God when your marriage collapses or you lose your job or when you're facing some other trauma in life? Where is God in the Ukraine or Turkey or Nashville or Oakland or anywhere else where people are suffering? from violence and hatred and dislocation and disaster. Where is God? And Elie Wiesel goes on in his book to continue describing what happened at Auschwitz. As he writes, the teenager lingered on the gallows for a long time. And again, a voice was heard asking the question, where is God? And as Wiesel writes, I heard a silent voice from somewhere within me answer, where's God? He's right there, hanging on the gallows. And you know, that insight from the perspective of a secular Jew is at the heart of our Christian faith. Because of all the things you can say about the meaning of the cross, all the emotions you can feel, all the theological statements you can make about what happens to us or for us when Jesus dies, one thing is clear, that we Christians follow and worship and are saved by a suffering God. A God who knows what it's like to endure pain and despair and who shares that experience with us even, even as we are also given the hope that suffering doesn't have to be the last word. And you know, the older I get and the, the longer I serve as a, minister, as a pastor, and believe me, 20 years serving here does seem like a long time, but a great time. But the longer I am engaged in this work, in this ministry, the more important that image of a suffering God becomes for me. I mean, 
I have counseled and comforted and prayed with so many people, some of you, during your life, when things were really dark, when things were really hard. And through it all, the cross of Christ tells me, and I hope it tells you, that God is present through it all. For example, I can think of a time about, gosh, 30 years ago when I was serving as a chaplain at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital down at Stanford. Part of the job of being a hospital chaplain for me required being on call periodically. And since I lived all the way with Margaret, my wife, up in Berkeley, had to commute all the way to Palo Alto every day. Um, that meant when I was on call at the hospital, I had to stay overnight in a hospital room myself and just have a pager with me. So there I was. It was actually the last night I had as a chaplain. And I didn't get any sleep at all. <laughs> I was waiting hour after hour after hour for the pager to go off, of course. And when it did, at 4.30 in the morning, I knew something had to be wrong. And, you know, when you get a pager that, or a cell phone that goes off at 4.30 in the morning, there's usually special that's not a good sign. It means that somebody has died and that there's a need for prayer for a chaplain. And that's what happened. A 12-year-old girl had just passed away after a long bout with leukemia. And when I got to her room, it was in chaos. There was hospital staff going in and out, unplugging things, moving things, setting up more space because her large family had just gathered in the room as well. And I figured out pretty quickly who the parents were. And so I went over to them and told them who I was. And I said something like, I'm so sorry for your loss. The problem that they were, was that they were Chinese and didn't speak a word of English. So a boy of probably eight or nine years old came over. He was the brother of the girl. And he said he'd translate for me, eight or nine years old. So I asked if there was anything I could do for the family. And the dad said, no through his son. Now, as I look back on it, I realize that he probably didn't have any clue who I was, the dad, or what I was. I wasn't wearing a clerical collar or anything like that, not even a name tag at 4.30 in the morning. I wasn't recognizable as a minister. For all he knew, I was just some other hospital staff employee. And then for some reason I asked, can I bring you anything? Maybe something to eat or drink. Don't ask me why I asked that question. I just did. And the dad said, yes. So a nurse and I went out to the vending machine and we uh, brought back cans of soda and bags of chips. That's all they had. And by the time I re-entered re the room, everything had changed. Everyone knew by that time that I was a minister because the little boy had told them. And as it turns out, the family was Christian. So the mom came over and she asked me to say a prayer, and I'll never forget what happened. As the family and I gathered around the bed and some of the hospital staff as well, <clears throat> at that very moment, the rays of the morning sun started pouring through that window. And I looked at that beautiful face of that beloved daughter lying there on the bed. And I started praying. 
don't remember what I said, but at some point, I started to say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, and the family joined in in whatever dialect of Chinese was their language, we all said it together. And somehow, in that terrible situation, something sacred happened. God was present in our pain because God knows what it is like to suffer. Both in Christ dying on the cross and as a loving parent who grieves, cries as their own child is dying and put to death. God knows what it's like. And God was with us in that place of profound sadness and confusion, just as surely as God is with us now in this very sanctuary during a sacred time of worship and celebration. God is with us through it all. You know, I didn't think much about what had happened for a few days after that time in the hospital. Then all of a sudden it came flooding back. I was drinking a can of Coke and eating some chips at lunch one day, and somehow that incredibly ordinary taste of potato chips and soda made me think of that night in the hospital. And I realized that our time of prayer around that girl's bed had really been an improvised act of communion. With bags of chips and cans of soda, instead of bread and wine, we were at one together in the presence of one who knows what it is to suffer and who promises to be with us in the midst of any suffering we endure. And not only that, we were with one with God, who does something to redeem that suffering and to bring us to a place of peace and healing and salvation. But that's a story for next week, for Easter. For today, just remember that as the Bible says, Jesus is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Reflect on what that means to you. And as you come to the table in a few moments, may you receive the presence and the peace and the power that God offers you in Jesus Christ. For no matter how dark things get in your life and no matter how dark it got in the last days of Jesus' life, there is hope on the horizon. There is a new day. There is light and life and the promise of new beginnings. Just reach out, receive it, share it, and be at one with the God who is always present with you. In Jesus' name, amen.